Chapter 49 The Hyena There are certain queer times and occasions in the strange mixed affair we call life when a man takes this whole universe for a vast practical joke, though the wit thereof he but dimly discerns, and more than suspects that the joke is at nobody's expense but his own. However, nothing dispirits, and nothing seems worthwhile disputing. He bolts down all events, all creeds and beliefs and persuasions, all hard things, visible and invisible, never mind how knobby, as an ostrich of potent digestion gobbles down bullets and gun flints. And as for small difficulties and worryings, prospects of sudden disaster, peril of life and limb, all these, and death itself, seem to him only sly, good-natured hits— and jolly punches in the side bestowed by the unseen and unaccountable old joker. That odd sort of wayward mood I am speaking of comes over a man only in some time of extreme tribulation. It comes in the very midst of his earnestness, so that what just before might have seemed to him a thing most momentous now seems but a part of the general joke, There is nothing like the perils of wailing to breed this free and easy sort of genial, desperado philosophy. And with it, I now regarded this whole voyage of the Pequod and the great white whale its object. Queequeg, said I, when they had dragged me, the last man, to the deck, and I was still shaking myself in my jacket to fling off the water. Queequeg, my fine friend, does this sort of thing often happen? Without much emotion, though soaked through just like me, he gave me to understand that such things did often happen. Mr. Stubb, said I, turning to that worthy, who buttoned up in his oil jacket, was now calmly smoking his pipe in the rain. Mr. Stubb, I think I have heard you say that of all whalemen you ever met, our chief mate, Mr. Starbuck, is by far the most careful and prudent— I suppose, then, that going plump on a flying whale with your sail set in a foggy squall is the height of a whaleman's discretion. Certain. I've lowered for whales from a leaking ship in a gale off Cape Horn. Mr. Flask, said I, turning to little Kingpost, who is standing close by, you are experienced in these things, and I am not. "'Will you tell me whether it is an unalterable law in this fishery, Mr. Flask, "'for an oarsman to break his own back, "'pulling himself back foremost into death's jaws?' "'Can't you twist that smaller?' said Flask. "'Yes, that's the law. "'I should like to see a boat's crew backing water up to a whale face foremost. "'Ha! The whale would give them squint for squint. Mind that.' Here, then, from three impartial witnesses, I had a deliberate statement of the entire case. Considering, therefore, that squalls and capsizings in the water were matters of common occurrence in this kind of life, considering that at the superlatively critical instant of going on to the whale, I must resign my life into the hands of him who steered the boat, oftentimes a fellow who at that very moment is in his impetuousness upon the point of scuttling the craft with his own frantic stampings. Considering that the particular disaster to our own particular boat was chiefly to be imputed to Starbucks driving on to his whale almost in the teeth of a squall, 
and considering that Starbuck, notwithstanding, was famous for his great heedfulness in the fishery. Considering that I belong to this uncommonly prudent Starbuck's boat, and finally considering in what a devil's chase I was implicated, touching the white whale. Taking all these things together, I say, I thought I might as well go below and make a rough draft of my will. Queequeg, said I, come along, you shall be my lawyer, executor, and legatee. It may seem strange that of all men sailors should be tinkering at their last wills and testaments, but there are no people in the world more fond of that diversion. This was the fourth time in my nautical life that I had done the same thing. After the ceremony was concluded upon the present occasion, I felt all the easier. A stone was rolled away from my heart. Besides, all the days I should now live would be as good as the days that Lazarus lived after his resurrection— a supplementary clean gain of so many months or weeks, as the case might be. I survived myself. My death and burial were locked up in my chest. I looked round me, tranquilly and contentedly, like a quiet ghost with a clean conscience, sitting inside the bars of a snug family vault. Now then, thought I, unconsciously rolling up the sleeves of my frock, here goes for a cool, collected dive at death and destruction, and the devil fetch the hindmost. Chapter 50 Ahab's Boat and Crew Fadala Who would have thought it, Flask, cried Stubb, if I had but one leg you would not catch me in a boat, unless maybe to stop the plug hole with my timber toe. Oh, he's a wonderful old man. "'I don't think it's so strange, after all, on that account,' said Flask. "'If his leg were off at the hip, now it would be a different thing. "'That would disable him. "'But he has one knee, and good part of the other left, you know. "'I don't know that, my little man. "'I never yet saw him kneel.' "'Among whale-wise people, it has often been argued whether, "'considering the paramount importance of his life to the success of the voyage,' it is right for a whaling captain to jeopardize that life in the active perils of the chase. So Tamerlane's soldiers often argued with tears in their eyes whether that invaluable life of his ought to be carried into the thickest of the fight. But with Ahab, the question assumed a modified aspect. Considering that with two legs man is but a hobbling weight in all times of danger— Considering that the pursuit of whales is always under great and extraordinary difficulties, that every individual moment, indeed, then compromises a peril, under these circumstances is it wise for any maimed man to enter a whaleboat in the hunt? As a general thing, the joint owners of the Pequod must have plainly thought not. Ahab well knew that although his friends at home would think little of his entering a boat in certain comparatively harmless vicissitudes of the chase, for the sake of being near the scene of action and giving his orders in person, yet for Captain Ahab to have a boat actually apportioned to him as a regular headsman in the hunt, above all for Captain Ahab to be supplied with five extra men as that same boat's crew, he well knew that such generous conceits never entered the heads of the owners of the Pequod. Therefore, he had not solicited a boat's crew from them, nor had he in any way hinted his desires on that head. 
Nevertheless, he had taken private measures of his own, touching all that matter. Until Cabico's published discovery, the sailors had little foreseen it. Though, to be sure, when, after being a little while out of port, all hands had concluded the customary business of fitting the whaleboats for service, when sometime after this, Ahab was now and then found bestirring himself in the matter of making full pins with his own hands for what was thought to be one of the spare boats, and even solicitously cutting the small wooden skewers, which, when the line is running out, are pinned over the groove in the bow. When all this was observed in him, and particularly his solicitude in having an extra coat of sheathing in the bottom of the boat, as if to make it better withstand the pointed pressure of his ivory limb, and also the anxiety he evinced in exactly shaping the thigh-board, or clumsy cleat, as it is sometimes called, the horizontal piece in the boat's bow for bracing the knee against, in darting or stabbing at the whale. When it was observed how often he stood up in that boat, with his solitary knee fixed in the semicircular depression in the cleat, and with the carpenter's chisel gouged out a little here and straightened it a little there, all these things, I say, had awakened much interest and curiosity at the same time. But almost everybody supposed that this particular preparative heedfulness in Ahab must only be with a view to the ultimate chase of Moby Dick, for he had already revealed his intention to hunt that mortal monster in person. But such a supposition did by no means involve the remotest suspicion as to any boat's crew being assigned to that boat. Now, with the subordinate phantoms, what wonder remained soon wand away, for in a whaler, wonder soon wane. Besides, now and then such unaccountable odds and ends of strained nations come up from the unknown nooks and ash-holes of the earth to man these floating outlaws of whalers. And the ships themselves often pick up such queer castaway creatures found tossing about the open sea on planks, bits of wreck, oars, whaleboats, canoes, blown off Japanese junks and what not that Beelzebub himself might climb up the side and step down into the cabin to chat with the captain, and it would not create any unsubduable excitement in the forecastle. But, be all this as it may, certain it is that while a subordinate phantom soon found their place among the crew, though still as it were somehow distinct from them, yet their hair-turbaned Fidala remained a muffled mystery to the last. Once he came in a mannerly world like this, by what sort of unaccountable tie he soon evinced himself to be linked with Ahab's peculiar fortunes. Nay, so far as to have some sort of a half-hinted influence. Heaven knows. But it might have been even authority over him. All this none knew. But one cannot sustain an indifferent air concerning Fidala. He was such a creature as civilized domestic people in the temperate zone only see in their dreams— and that but dimly. But the like of whom now and then glide among the unchanging Asiatic communities, especially the Oriental Isles to the east of the continent, those insulated, immemorial, unalterable countries, which even in these modern days still preserve much of the ghostly aboriginalness of Earth's primal generations, when the memory of the first man was a distinct recollection, and all men his descendants, unknowing whence he came, eyed each other as real phantoms, and asked of the sun and the moon why they were created and to what end, 
When, though, according to Genesis, the angels indeed consorted with the daughters of men, the devils also, add the uncanonical rabbins, indulged in amours. Chapter 51 The Spirit's Boat Days, weeks passed, and under easy sail, the ivory Pequod had slowly swept across four several cruising grounds. That off the Azores, off the Cape de Verdes, off the Plate, so-called, being off the mouth of the Rio de la Plata, and the Carroll Ground, an unstaked watery locality southerly from St. Helena. It was while gliding through these latter waters that one serene and moonlight night, when all the waves rolled by like scrolls of silver, and by their soft, suffusing seethings, made what seemed a silvery silence, not a solitude. On such a silent night, a silvery jet was seen far in advance of the white bubbles at the bow. Lit up by the moon, it looked celestial, seemed some plumed and glittering god uprising from the sea. Fadala first described this jet, for of these moonlight nights it was his wont to mount to the main masthead, and stand a lookout there, with the same precision as if it had been day. And yet, though herds of whales were seen by night, not one whaleman in a hundred would venture a lowering for them. You may think with what emotions, then, the seaman beheld this old oriental perched aloft at such unusual hours, his turban and the moon companions in one sky. But when, after spending his uniform interval there for several successive nights without uttering a single sound, when, after all this silence, his unearthly voice was heard announcing that silvery, moonlit jet, every reclining mariner started to his feet as if some winged spirit had lighted in the rigging and hailed the mortal crew. There she blows. Had the trump of judgment blown, there could not have quivered more, Yet still they felt no terror, rather pleasure, for though it was a most unwanted hour, yet so impressive was the cry and so deliriously exciting that almost every soul on board instinctively desired a lowering. Walking the deck with quick side-lunging strides, Ahab commanded the gallant sails and royals to be set, and every stunsail spread. The best man in the ship must take the helm, then, with every masthead manned, the piled-up craft rolled down before the wind. The strange, upheaving, lifting tendency of the taffrail breeze filling the hollows of so many sails made the buoyant, hovering deck to feel like air beneath the feet. While still she rushed along as if two antagonistic influences were struggling in her, one to mount direct to heaven, the other to drive yawingly to some horizontal goal, and had you watched Ahab's face that night, you would have thought that in him also two different things were warring. While his one live leg made lively echoes along the deck, every stroke of his dead limb sounded like a coffin tap. On life and death this old man walked. But though the ship so swiftly sped, and though from every eye, like arrows, the eager glances shot, yet the silvery jet was no more seen that night. Every sailor swore he saw it once, but not a second time. This midnight spout had almost grown a forgotten thing. When some days after, lo, at the same silent hour, it was again announced. 
again it was descried by all. But upon making sail to overtake it, once more it disappeared, as if it had never been. And so it served us, night after night, till no one heeded it but to wonder at it. Mysteriously jetted into the clear moonlight, or starlight, as the case might be, disappearing again for one whole day, or two days, or three, and somehow seeming at every distinct repetition to be advancing still further and further in our van, this solitary jet seemed forever alluring us on. Nor with the immemorial superstition of their race, as in accordance with the preternaturalness as it seemed, which in many things invested the Pequod, were there wanting some of the seamen who swore that whenever and wherever descried, at however remote times, or in however far apart latitudes and longitudes, that unnearable spout was cast by one self-same whale, and that whale, Moby Dick. For a time there reigned, too, a sense of peculiar dread at this flitting apparition, as if it were treacherously beckoning us on and on, in order that the monster might turn round upon us and rend us at last in the remotest and most savage seas. These temporary apprehensions, so vague but so awful, derived a wondrous potency from the contrasting serenity of the weather, in which, beneath all its blue blandness, some thought there lurked a devilish charm, as for days and days we voyaged along, through seas so wearily, lonesomely mild, that all space, in repugnance to our vengeful errand, seemed vacating itself of life before our urn-like prow. But at last, when turning to the eastward, the cape winds began howling around us, and we rose and fell upon the long, troubled seas that are there, when the ivory-tusked Pequod sharply bowed to the blast and gored the dark waves in her madness, till, like showers of silver chips, the foam flakes flew over her bulwarks. Then all this desolate of life went away, but gave place to sights more dismal than before. Close to our bows, strange forms in the water darted hither and thither before us, while thick in our rear flew the inscrutable sea-ravens, and every morning, perched on our stays, rows of these birds were seen, and in spite of our hootings, for a long time, obstinately clung to the hemp, as though they deemed our ship some drifting, uninhabited craft, a thing appointed to desolation, and therefore fit roosting place for their homeless selves. And heaved and heaved, still unrestingly heaved the black sea, as if its vast tides were a conscience, and the great mundane soul were in anguish and remorse for the long sin and suffering it had bred. Cape of Good Hope, do they call ye? Rather Cape Tormentoso, as called of yore, for long allured by the silences that before had attended us, we found ourselves launched into this tormented sea, where guilty beings transformed into those fowls and these fish seemed condemned to swim on everlastingly without any haven in store, or beat that black air without any horizon. But calm, snow-white, and unvarying, still directing its fountain of feathers to the sky, still beckoning us on from before, the solitary jet would at times be descried. During all this blackness of the elements, Ahab, though assuming for the time the almost continual command of the drenched and dangerous deck, manifested the gloomiest reserve, 
and more seldom than ever addressed his mates. In tempestuous times like these, after everything above and aloft has been secured, nothing more can be done but passively to await the issue of the gale. Then captain and crew become practical fatalists. So with his ivory leg inserted into its accustomed hole, and with one hand firmly grasping a shroud, Ahab, for hours and hours, would stand gazing dead to windward, while an occasional squall of sleet or snow would all but congeal his very eyelashes together. Meantime, the crew, driven from the forward part of the ship by the perilous seas that burstingly broke over its bows, stood in a line along the bulwarks in the waist, and the better to guard against the leaping waves, each man had slipped himself into a sort of bow line secured to the rail, in which he swung as in a loosened belt. Few or no words were spoken, and the silent ship, as if manned by painted sailors in wax, day after day tore on through all the swift madness and gladness of the demonic waves. By night, the same muteness of humanity before the shrieks of the ocean prevailed. Still, in silence, the men swung in the bow lines. Still, wordless Ahab stood up to the blast. Even when wearied nature seemed demanding repose, he would not seek that repose in his hammock. Never could Starbuck forget the old man's aspect. When one night, going down into the cabin to mark how the barometer stood, he saw him with closed eyes sitting straight in his floor-screwed chair. The rain and half-melted sleet of the storm, for which he had some time before emerged, still slowly dripping from the unremoved hat and coat. On the table beside him lay unrolled one of those charts of tides and currents which have previously been spoken of. His lantern swung from his tightly clenched hand. Though the body was erect, the head was thrown back so that the closed eyes were pointed towards the needle of the telltale that swung from a beam in the ceiling. The cabin compass is called the telltale because without going to the compass at the helm, the captain, while below, can inform himself of the course of the ship. Terrible old man, thought Starbuck, with a shudder, sleeping in the scale. Still thou steadfastly eyest thy purpose. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.